People like that, corporations like that, they all have the money. They all have the power and they use it to make people like you go away. Right now, you're suffering under an enormous weight. We provide leverage. Uh, I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Journalist, we're talking about the best, best show that was nearly ever created called Leverage. So I unbashingly love this show. I loved it when it aired. I love doing some rewatch here. I haven't seen it. I haven't watched it a lot since it stopped airing. I watched it as it aired and then maybe once afterwards. But mm-hmm. top tier comfy comfort food show for Chris. It, it, it's, I was amused by how you phrased that because you're like, this is one of the best ep- shows called Leverage, which I interpreted as of all the shows called Leverage, this is the best one. Because there actually are a few different shows. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's Redemption, um, which is the new kind of spinoff thing. Um, but also there is a, a Korean version of Ledger, which apparently is really good. <laughs> I've not seen it yet, but I've heard really good things about it. And, and I've watched some of Redemption. And for me, I like this one better. And that's just mm-hmm. because it's kind of like when you first see the Doctor Who. The first Doctor you meet kind of becomes your Doctor. And so when I first saw leverage, this kind of became like my leverage and I mm-hmm. like the other ones, but I don't like them as much as I like this one with the initial crew, the initial concept and watching them work it out throughout the course of the seasons. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, not, not to get too much into the, we'll talk more of the specifics when we talk about episodes, but like one of the things I've always liked about the first kind of crew of leverage is the fact that you're right. It was, built for a specific job. Um, and then they realized they liked working together and they kept working together. Um, but then as the crew evolves and rotates, now it's become an established thing that people can opt in and out of. And it, it loses some of that dynamic of this could fall apart at any moment, right? And, and certainly for a couple of seasons, it, it, they very much teased like this could fall apart if one thing goes wrong. But after that it becomes, oh, well, leverage as, a, as an organization as a group has always has now been around for a few years so it's not going to go away which is kind of, of of it's it's cool and it's fine in its own way but it also does kind of diminish some of the tension of how can this go bad and i think i've mentioned on the on the show also in the past as someone that pretty much grew up by themselves it is great and an amazing thing to watch people find a family and they are all professionals and they try to stay professionals, but they realize more and more how much they need and like being part of a family. Mm-hmm. And to see that transition is a joy in of itself on top of like good writing, good action. Fanta- Let me take that back. Fantastic acting and camaraderie amongst at least some of the cast members. Mm-hmm. Do we want to talk about the elephant in the room before we get into the nuances of that? Yeah. So, Timothy Hutton, who is also in another show that I love uh, called Nero Wolf that I've mentioned a few times, Eddie, that I want to cover sometime mm-hmm. down the road when we do mysteries, was accused of sexual assault against a 14-year-old, I want to say it was in 1989, 
and they mm -hmm. came forward a few years ago. The allegations were found to be inconclusive and they was not charged in the end. He adamantly denied it. There are supposedly witnesses that saw them go some into a room somewhere together when this person was 14. But in the end, he was not charged with that. And then he sued the leverage people because around they were starting to make leverage redemption. They killed Nate. So he couldn't mm -hmm. come back because all this was very much in the public and the show didn't side with him or make, I think a stance. They just decided that we do not know what's going on. So we are going to opt out of having you be part of our redo of the show. And then he right. sued them for a violating a payer played contract. Yep. Yeah. If I reach a contract. Yep. Yeah. So, so I mean, that's, that's, that's frustrating. <clears throat> uh, certainly, but I don't know how much of this is me having been colored by the controversy because I haven't frankly thought about leverage until around the time this started popping up um, and how much of it is, is genuine. But I've always felt that Nate was kind of one of the weaker parts of the show for me. Um, I, I felt like his, uh, his, 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 his conflicts with his ex-wife, his, his on again, off again with Sophie was always kind of the, oh, and we have the subplot. I get it. His his story was the reason why the group is together, um, but the other characters are always much more interesting to me. Well, it goes back to the Hollywood issue that we need to have a white male lead. I could even make some comments about Doctor Who right now with this statement, how we have mm -hmm. to have a white male re lead regardless of everything. So that's right. why Nate's story is center. That's why if you look at Leverage the Redemption, when they killed off Nate, who did they replace him with? Yeah, another white guy. So it keeps going back to that and having this amazing cast of crew and everything always having to revolve around that person because mm. they, I think they could have easily done it at, at least for redemption without Nate. It is already establishing the show that Sophie is pretty great at doing what Nate does and mm -hmm. they could have kept it like that. Yeah. Speaking of which you should probably talk about the team that you mentioned Sophie. <sighs> I am actually not going to do that yet. If I mention Sophie, I'm actually going to talk a, at least a side divergent about Gina Bellman and talk about how leverage is connected to Doctor Who. Oh, Jesus. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it's, it's a very short tangent because Gina <laughs> Bellman was on a good show at the time that has not aged well called Coupling, which was mm -hmm. a funny, very funny show. And if I remember properly, correctly it was written by a, a small barely known doctor who showrunner called steven somebody i think it's a steven muppet steven russell steven muppet steven moffat oh yes it? how is it so Did, this... didn't he complete ruin sherlock holmes and dracula oh yeah that guy <laughs> <laughs> uh i we're not there yet we're not gonna talk about those i don't you know what i will defend benedict cumberbatch portrayal of Doctor Strange anytime you want to. <laughs> Not his questionable American accent as Doctor Strange. He should have just been British as Doctor Strange and called it a day. But I'm just saying he was he was best when he was a, an airline pilot in a radio show. But I won't go oh, into that. <laughs> it is sad that I know that show. Jeez. <laughs> this is why we are friends. 
I thought you were going to say it was better when he was the the troubled son of a middle class family in a certain British TV show. That's all I'm going to give you. I'm going to be more I, vague. I actually don't even know that one. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. yeah you win. And people can see I'm making like little lightning bolt signs <laughs> at the sky. It's, it's a whole thing. It's, it's a dance that Eddie and I do when we stump the other one for a minute. Right. Exactly. All right. The actual team themselves. We've got um, Hardison, who is a hacker, who is played by the inestimable Aldous Hodge, who is a fantastic force of nature, which if anyone is curious who he is, uh, he was the new Hawkman in the Black Adam movie. So mm. effectively, he has become Elliot now, if you look at him, because he is jacked. Jacked! Yeah, yeah. In when I cast my Haunted West movie, I frequently cast him as my as one of the keys, key players in my Haunted West movie that I would dream that someone would come and make for me. Nice. Then we've got Parker, who is a thief. Uh, I actually do not know a lot about Beth. I forgot her last name as an actress because I've only know her from Parker on this role. Mm-hmm. I don't know much about her either. However. I do know that uh, she, along with uh, John Rogers, have done some uh, DVD commentary uh, on Leverage, obviously. And one of the things they have both said is that while the networks would not allow them to say so, um, they always viewed Parker as being uh, autistic. And she very much played it with, with that in mind. And it so much that I noticed it like I, – I, I watched the first episode, and I was like – wait a minute, is Parker supposed to be autistic? And so I Googled and I typed on this information. So, I mean, she, she clearly uh, embraced that aspect of the role, even though they weren't allowed to talk about it on screen. Very cool. Then we've got Nate, who we've kind of already talked about, but Nate's the mastermind. I can go into more detail about each shortly, once we actually into the episode proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have Elliot, who is a hitter, who is played by, was it Christian Kane? For our angel people, will be very familiar with Christian as he was Angel's primary antagonist, Lindsay, throughout the course of the Angel show. Oh wow! He he buffed up a little bit since then. Clearly, because first season he was very much just a Weasley lawyer, but the fifth season he was like badass dude who was running over Angel in a pickup truck like a western, like a western cowboy. <laughs> oh, Angel. Is there anything in particular you'd like to hit on? I've given a very high-level overview. I've talked to bits and pieces about things. And in case people are curious, it is I am super tired this morning because it is super semi-early for me because I had a late night last night. Uh, whereas I, I am recording during the uh, five hours of something I have today. So <laughs> it can start at 2 p.m. here now. It sucks. I don't like it. But no, the only thing I want to talk about is uh, the showrunner, John Rogers. We don't often talk about showrunners unless it's Chris making vague threats about talking about John Nathan Turner. Um, but John Rogers. you're going to have to do it. I know. I know. I'm, I'm not putting it off as long as we can. But one of the things about John Rogers specifically uh, is that he's very much a gamer and not in the kind of weirdly trendy celebrities who play D&D style, but like long school long time gamer to the point where he actually after leverage um was the uh writer for the official D comic that idw did about 10 years ago now seven <laughs> years ago now 
And he's always said that Leverage was absolutely designed to be a tabletop RPG party. <laughs> and I'd always kind of suspected that, but certainly knowing that and then going back and watching this, it's super clear that this is exactly the kind of bickering that tabletop groups have. <laughs> and yet, weirdly, it's funny, weirdly, like I said last episode that Burnos is kind of close to get to a Shadowrun uh, a game, and, and Leverage doesn't nope. quite scratch that specific itch. It, it's a very different itch. <laughs> Since you want to mention that, I also want to mention Dean Devlin, who was um, the director of some of them, but I think he's also the person that pitched the show in 2007. Mm-hmm. He was pitching a show that he wanted to be similar to the shows that he grew up with, like Mission Impossible and the A-Team, and that mm-hmm. wasn't as dark as other shows on television. He wanted something that sort of feel that fill a certain niche that also had like all the high comedy and trauma to it too. Yeah. It's funny. Now that you say a team, I, I, I can see the kind of <laughs> inspirational reference to it. I can see the links to it. It's a team of five people. They all have very specific roles. They travel around to do good things. Yeah. I, I could definitely see the a team DNA now that you say that. Mm. Yeah. Any other comments you want to talk about? High level before we get into the show proper itself. I think that's it. I think we can go into it. Do you want to talk about the the leverage role playing game that exists for anyone that wants to go out and buy it that neither of us I think have worked on, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, this anymore. It, it it it. I think it's it's stopped being published. Uh, but but yeah, I mean honestly, okay. So uh, leverage. <laughs> I didn't work on it. Um, I, I stumbled across it uh, because I was a fan of the show. Um, someone kind of mentioned it to me. I, I ended up uh, uh, a friend of mine, Cam Banks, worked on it, and so he's the one who mentioned it to me initially. And so I got to play it pretty early on. And honestly, it it was one of those games where there's one cool mechanic, and that is the thing that stuck with me. The rest of the game is pretty straightforward. It, it's what you expect from a tabletop game about a high school. But the one mechanic that, that, that I've loved, that I have shamelessly stolen ever since then for need to be, is the flashback mechanic, um, which is that because in every heist film, there's always the, the the plan goes wrong, but then it was revealed that was actually part of the real plan anyway that we didn't see. Yeah. And one of the problems with games like Shadowrun is usually, well, besides Deckers, is that people spend two hours planning the job. And then you don't have time to actually do the job anymore because all the game time is spent just planning it. And the, the RPG does a great job of going, no, we're just in the middle of the heist. And then you can spend points to say, well, retroactively, we planned for this. And here's how I did that. And explain it in flashback how it was actually planned for. And that was just such a, a revelation and a cool concept. that I, 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 I've, again, used it in various games since then. And I've noticed now that you say that some games are actually building that intrinsically into their own systems. Like, mm-hmm. Because I'm getting ready to play pathfinder 2e uh one of the feats that you can take it's called prescient planner which is where you basically don't need to worry about your gear or anything you've already planned it if you're in the field and you need it you can spend the amount of gold or whatever it was you need to have the item to say that you've already bought it yep Mm -hmm. because you know i thought this was going to happen so i prepared ex machina (laughs) right because being the mastermind who's figured something out that that moment is fun, the actual planning and trying to figure everything out at a time is, is not at all fun. Um, so it, it's cool to see role-playing games make the cool parts of the game the, the focus. And again, with leverage, it's the, the heist is the center of it, so it's really built up. I, like, like combat is kind of 
it's there, but it's not nearly as intricate as some other games because, like, fighting is not really a thing. If you get into a fight with security guards and whatnot, you're going to lose, more or less, unless there's a very specific part of the plan. Um, so it's it's cool to see how something like that shifts the design. But you're right. It, it's it, it's something that kind of was quietly put into the leverage game, and it, it has been seeded out through lots of other games. It's one of those leverage, – leverage RP is one of those designer RPGs that, like, only fans of the show and designers like really excited about it. and everyone else is like, oh, okay, it's a game about leverage, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we keep threatening that one day we're going to do a more game focused episode. I feel that is getting closer and closer every recording. Just, just like one to scratch that itch, then we can go back. I mean, we, 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 I'm surprised we didn't do as much game talk as we could have on the edge runners episode. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I think we're ready to, to jump into it. I think it's, with leverage, it was difficult for me to figure out how I wanted to write the synopsis. One way I wrote mm-hmm. it, I had like uh, the con and then I wrote out like the con and then I had like the reveal to change you sort of what happened. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, nope, that's a big change of structure that I don't feel like doing all the way through. So instead I wrote, I, I say wrote, I stole from the internet a big <laughs> synopsis of it mm-hmm. and I posted up here and I think my approach today is going to be reading a paragraph or two and then we discuss that because there, okay. one of the things about leverage is that there is a lot that goes on in each episode. It's not like yeah. some of the shows we watch where there's some plot and then there's a lot of like just action with no, no plot development. Yeah. No, like uh, if you're the, the last episode we did of burn notice, every episode of leverage is like that. So, <laughs> yeah. So, all right. Season one, episode one, the Nigerian job in a Chicago pub, former insurance fraud investigator, Nathan Ford is drowning the ah, downing the last in a string of drinks where he's approached by aerospace executive Victor. Victor tells him that his plans were stolen by a rival company. and He wants Nate to help steal them back. The stolen plans are computer files being held in an extremely well-guarded office building. To get in, Victor has put together a team of in highly skilled individuals. First, uh, the hacker, Alec Hardison, a for us, because when we get scenes of each of them, a geek extraordinaire who you see was also hacking by the age of 14, a bruiser, Elliot Spencer, or as they call him here, a retrieval specialist who is shown <laughs> just drinking coffee very slyly in a room full of armed men to recover a baseball card. And lastly, a cat burger, Parker, who is shown to be an adrenaline junkie. Nate wonders why he's being included in all these. Victor tells him he needs one honest man to manage them. Not only are these people, not only are he using these people early morning, not only are these <laughs> people used to working alone, they're criminals. And Victor needs someone he can trust to manage them. One of the the big pieces for this that we also don't necessarily, I think, get right here is that in Nate's past, Nate has interacted with all of these people on some level, chasing them, trying to capture them. Like, that is a bit that is not directly given away yet. Yeah. So, I will say, like, I'm going to give some, I'm going to give a lot of stick to Nathan Forge to move forward, but one of the things that I, I did find really interesting in this first thing is that you get a lot of characterization like very fast i mean the time from like 
like I think screen time, it took less time to actually cover all that than it took you to read it. I mean, it was, it was extremely fast, and you get a lot of information right up front. Nathan is an honest man. He's an insurance investigator. He's uh, upset about something. He's no longer in that job. He, like you said, he chased all these people down. We get that the hacker is a geek. The bruiser is a, a you know a fighter with some kind of conscience. Uh, Parker is obsessive and burned her house down when she was a kid. Okay. <gasps> It, 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 it's extremely efficient. And on top of all of that, you get the subplot of Nathan Ford as an alcoholic all within like five minutes. It's extremely tidy. And so just even forecasting to the future, one of the things that I really like is that Nathan's alcoholism is obvious. It's not subtle yeah. and it's not something that goes away at the end of the first episode the first season it is an ongoing battle and that is a better representation of how alcoholism works yeah it reminds <clears throat> me of how holmes's drug habit is portrayed in elementary um the fact that he from episode one to the final episode is dealing with his addiction constantly nathan ford uh, i feel like he is more of a functioning alcoholic than the show portrays him as because like there are times where alcoholism is only a plot relevant and, and sometimes there's times where he should probably be doing something or, or reacting a certain way and he doesn't so i mean i feel like it's a bit nebulous in terms of how it's portrayed but again i, I do give props for the fact that the show never forgets that detail um and it does keep coming back even when he feels like he's conquered it it's always in the background so so the fact that the very first scene we see with nate ford he is drinking tells you a lot about where this character is going to go. My only slight comment for that would be that <clears throat> the more that you drink and the more consecutively that you drink, generally the higher alcohol tolerance becomes. So you need more and more alcohol to keep that where we'll graciously call it buzz, but to keep that state so that mm -hmm. would allow for higher level of functioning, depending on how much you're drinking and things like that. Oh, totally. I want mean, to I, get I, more into like the nuances of it, but. Oh, I mean, I trust me. I, I, without going too dark, real fast, my uncle, one of my uncles, all my uncles died from alcoholism. The latest one died. Um, <laughs> when he died, we had a garbage bag full of vodka bottles when he died. So, I mean, I deeply aware of how high <laughs> alcohol tolerance gets. And I do one thing I like is that even when the show's not focusing on it, um, Nate is always contriving to find reasons to have a drink in his hands. Even when he's like in the middle of doing a con or something, um, he's always picking up a drink whether it's a prop or something or in the middle of planning he's got a drink in his hands so like it's a small detail that the show at least does constantly reference before we take the next beat anything else you want to talk about the initial opening scenes with all of them like with parker hardison elliot no, no i think it's a good start point okay my one other point for Parker, then, since you mentioned the house exploding, is the father telling her that she needs to be a better thief or to stop. Like, that yeah. is... <laughs> Nathan tur turns him down at first until Victor tells him that the rival company is being is insured by IYS, Nathan's former employer. He reminds Nate of how IYS refused to pay for his son Sam's treatment, leading to Sam's death and points out that this job would do serious damage to the insurance company. Nathan agrees. Just want to... Uh, I'm going to stop, stop there about. because 
there are a couple times I've had talked to some of my European friends who didn't quite understand why the insurance company was the villain. And I'm like, you haven't lived in America, clearly. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> I was like, yes, please, fucking insurance company. <laughs> Not to get too personal how we get personal on the show, but as we're family dealing with some insurance company shenanigans right now, very much on point. And regardless of what I'm going to say about the actor Timothy Hutton, I can tell you as a father, if that were to happen to my child, I would do what Nate did and take up with the team and do everything I could to burn IYS to the ground. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I agree with that. And uh, this leads to, we, we talk about the genre being criminal does good, criminals do good, but the other genre that this points to that I, that I like is what I've kind of dubbed competency porn. <laughs> which is watching people who are really good at what they do do it well and do it in the service of something that is, is very sympathetic and so like yeah watching five people who are excellent at their jobs tear down a corporation because some guys died because they refused to pay out the insurance policy is just a satisfying tv show to watch uh so you've heard me mention Airwolf before victor here mm-hmm. is played by one of the by Saul Rubinick, I believe is his full name, mm-hmm. who also is a reoccurring character in the Nero Wolf show, along with Timothy Hutton, who plays Archie Goodwood. For anyone that doesn't know Nero uh-huh. Wolf, Nero Wolf is sort of an Americanized version of Sherlock Holmes. Except it set Nero Wolf himself is described in the book as being a relatively large man. So mm-hmm. in the time, large, I think they said he weighed a quarter of a ton, which means 250 pounds. Right. So sounds, take that for scary. what you will, <laughs> who is a genius, but does never want to leave his home. So he hires another detective who sort of lives with him and is his second called Archie Goodwin, who he sends out to do all the legwork. If you notice any similarities between Mycroft Holmes and Sherlock Holmes, they're obviously not at all intentional. Right. Uh, so actually, hold on, I have a question. Um, you said quarter of a ton. I thought Tom was 2000 pounds. You're right. I was in my own brain for a second. That'd be 500 pounds, which is still. That is, that is large. Right. But <laughs> I'll need to double check. Cause that is me remembering something from like 20 years ago. Fair enough. Uh, uh, but, but I mean, you're right there, there, there are a definite kind of what if Mycroft films, but American. Yeah. And the show itself is very upbeat. It was an A and E sort of series and it ran for multiple times. And I'm specifically mentioning the show again, because we're going to get another cast member from that show in the, one of these three episodes. anything else on this before i move on just the fact that there are clearly only 10 actors working in 2008 because they're all all these shows all right the the team heads to the headquarters of pearson aviation the team the target of their heist after a few close calls they manage to find the files download them bluff their way past security at the front to escape once they're away, they send off the files. Nate promises the team that their money will be transferred before the morning. Before morning. And so they all go their separate ways. Would you like me yeah. to go to the next beat or stop here? Because oh, what just, happens there? Yeah, I, I was just going to mention just the fact that the them walking away scene is a beat that gets reiterated through at least the first season. So it does. And so one of the, the notes is that it happens all the way to the end of the first season. And then it is retired until the end of the fifth season okay, to so show that they've come together as a family and as a team at that point in time. 
which goes back right. to the thing I was talking about, how they have rely, rely so much on each other and how they are now one unit. Like that is mm-hmm. a, a wonderful thing to see, even as, as an adult, as a, as a man of a certain age, it is, it is harder to find friends and to bond with them on that level. It, it warms the cockles of my long since dead burned husk of a heart to, to see it transpire in a television show in the, the mid to early 2000s. In any scene, I've leaned back in my chair, and I have no intention of going on other than rambling right <laughs> now, unless Eddie takes a podcast back, which he's not going to do because he enjoys these long, meandering thoughts of mine just to see how long I can do them for. I'm but what he doesn't know is the longer I go, we lose one listener at a time, which we can't afford. We only have one listener, so it's fine. No, I have multiple listeners. So, All right. The only thing I really want to touch on for this is the fact that their plan is so well executed that even they have the backup plan where they take Parker and use that to sort of escape and push past the guard. I could go into mm-hmm. how Nate sort of organizes a team, how Parker jumps off the roof, but that goes back into them being incredibly skilled and specialized. The initial bantering is fun though. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's in a way it's kind of hard to talk about the show because like either the option is to break down the heist entirely, but really ultimately what happens, especially in this first kind of mini heist uh, is just, they do their job, things go slightly wrong. They, they pivot and then they do their job. Um, so it's, it, 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 it's just satisfying to, again, watch people who are very competent at what they do manage to pull it off. Even, you know, Parker pretending to have her foot broken and, and creating a scene uh, is, is, is just wonderful. It, Cause it, cause it's, one thing that leverage is really well that I like, and that's, that's just a good thing to talk about here, is how it seamlessly blends criminals doing their job well and humor. Like the tension never leaves the job, but it's hysterical to see Parker trying to pretend like she's a sobbing mess of an injured woman. It, it, it's a funny moment, but the whole time there's tension of like, will the guards figure it out? Will the guards figure it out? Okay, they didn't. Phew. So it leverages like that constantly. It, it recognizes that ultimately on some level it's a TV show and it's funny, um, but that doesn't detract from the, the actual drama and tension of the show. And one of the things that I want to mention now is that through the course of the show, Elliot is the, um, the backbone, sort of like the hitter of the team, which mm-hmm. isn't called that. And at no point in time do we see Elliot use or bring a gun up to this point. Mm-hmm. So that is was weird in some levels because if we think about burn notice while michael doesn't really always have a gun but he he doesn't usually have a gun he does carry them more frequently within i think the first episode of burn notice and we get from elliot throughout this entire three episodes i've chosen right the reason why michael's used guns is not because he won't it's because you just have access to them so that was like the other hand happy to use guns (laughs) (laughs) and that was a great contrast it's also a nice contrast to have the the techie and the hitter together bantering off each other to build that sort of opposites attract sort of a camaraderie. Right. The odd couple, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Moving on, if you're ready. Yep. In the morning, he gets a call from an angry Victor who tells him the files never arrived. Nate knows they were sent, but Victor isn't having it and demands to meet him at the old warehouse owned by his company. When Nate arrives, he finds the others at each other's throat. Nate laughs at the ridiculousness of the whole situation until he realizes they've been lured into a trap. Everyone runs out of the building, but 
doesn't quite outrun the explosion. When they wake up, they find themselves in a hospital all under arrest. Thanks to some quick thinking, a couple of stolen cell cell phones and a fake fax, they managed to con their way out of the hospital by convincing the police that Hardison is a deep cover agent infiltrating the gang for the FBI. I don't know how much you want me to read. I'm taking shorter yeah, beats yeah, yeah. until we get to the sense of it. I don't have, have much to say on this one aside from, again, we see a reprise of the... Well, so first of all, uh, the, then we get the warehouse, we have kind of a, almost a tease of the we're going to all walk our separate ways thing, and then you see them all walk back. Um, so the, what the show is doing pacing-wise is like it had the beat of them going separate ways, then the show... They, they frame that almost very similarly, but it's top-down shot of them walking out and then walking back in the camera and then a cut of each of their faces as they're walking away and then coming back. And so the visual language is you're going to see this thing again, and sure enough, we do see it again at the, the end of this episode. Spoiler. Uh, but so it, but what, what's, what's interesting is this is pure structure now. You put the first instance relatively early on. You put second instance pretty close to that one. Then you have some time before you have a third instance and then you have three it caps out. But that means that then you could take several episodes and so you have to reference it again. But when you do, people go, oh, that's a reference. That's a thing. So each time you reference it, you can put more and more space to it and trust that people are going to know it because they now see that's a structure. Um, and so just purely, think you have to put it cl- the first two close together to show that it's a structure. And in this case, they're doing it while also simultaneously kind of undermining it because do come back i'm also thinking we need to have an episode where eddie talks about story structure like maybe that'll be a a special maybe and as i'm thinking of these i mentioned them out loud eddie's face continues to drop thinking how many episodes do we have to do a week to do that so many good times they go to hardison's apartment to examine the files they stole thanks to a coincidental broadcasting, they hear that Pearson Aviation is saying that the designs were stolen. When Hardison goes through the plans, he finds evidence that they really were Pearson's designs, with no evidence that bearing aircraft ever had anything to do with it. Sufficient to say the team is upset. Not only have they been lied to, manipulated, and nearly killed, they aren't getting paid. Uh, Hardison passes out fake IDs and plane tickets to get them all out of town, but Nate stops them. They could run, or they could get revenge. Why does Nate care so much? Victor used Nate's son. This is a scene that I love because he goes to, because right now there's only the three of them plus Nate. We don't have Sophie yet. Mm -hmm. And when he talks to Elliot, he talks about revenge and then money. And for Parker, he talks about money and revenge. Mm -hmm. And for Hardison, Hardison's like, I was already in. (laughs) Right. So like that shows those three characters instantly in that one scene and how Nate knows those characters up to this point, which they've had maybe 12 hours together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's and, and again, it, it's done for humor because he does the revenge and money and the money and revenge thing. It, it's obviously a humorous beat, but it does show that not only do they all have overlapping interests, but also they have different emphasis on those interests. Um, so Parker is fine with being screwed over, but is not fine with not being paid. Whereas Hardison cares more about the, the being screwed over part than the not being paid part. Nate takes him to a small theater where a woman on stage is absolutely butchering her role in Lady Macbeth. 
and the team makes a random jokes and Nate just says, wait for it. Afterwards, they find her outside where Nate introduces her as a con artist, a master grifter, Sophie. After, after introducing her, the team explains her situation. He convinces her to help them out as Victor has seen all of their faces and they need someone he has not met yet. Mm. At Victor's company, Sophie introduces herself as a developer from South Africa and expresses interest in a new plane. She gives her wonderful performance, surprising Hardison. Nate tells him that Sophie is the greatest actress, but only when she's breaking the law. Meanwhile, Hardison crashes Victor's secretary's computer, which Elliot has disguised himself as an IT guy and flirts with the lady to distract her, which allows Parker time to get to Victor's office and plant a transmitter. Sophie manages to convince Victor to discuss the terms and arranges a meeting. So uh, I have not watched all of Leverage. Maybe you could answer this for me. This is, again, me just going by watching this again and remembering one of my frustrations with with Sophie. And it's not the character. It's how she is explained. Because in this episode, it says she's only a good actor when she's breaking the law. And I've never quite bought that. To me, I think what's more likely is that she is one of those people that is really good at acting to a very small audience, but chokes up when a large audience is involved, even the idea of a large audience. But I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is spelled out more clearly throughout other episodes of Leverage. Um, as I have not watched this in some time, I think what it is, is it goes more back to a thing that when you're doing the thing that you really want to be overly successful, you get nervous and you can't quite get out of your own head. And I think that's right. what it's trying to prepare, present for Sophie whenever she gets on stage. Like she wants this, but can't get out of her own way to be able to do it. And the other thing is just second nature. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's kind of how I always interpret it is that if the, when, she, when there's a, a, a grift or a con <laughs> on, she has other things in her head. So she's she just, she can't overthink it. And therefore she's, she's wonderful. But when she only has the acting in front of her, it, it's too much and she gets overwhelmed. And as, as we're taking a beat to talk about Sophie and Nate, I know they pushed really hard for this relationship. I, as a viewer oh, do not man. see the chemistry between these two actors. No, I do you, I, I might miss it. I could be thinking that Jane should be with Steve from coupling. That's a couplings joke for people that know that show. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, there is more chemistry between Hardison and Elliot. <laughs> between Nate and Sophie, like, like I, like I, I, I believe those two have a relationship and are fucking off screen. <laughs> but Nate and Sophie, it, it just feels so contrived. I don't know. I, it just, I, I mean, again, like, it, it, I don't have a problem with Sophie Devereaux as a character. I have a problem with some of the ways she's written, right? Because when she's not, when her character's not involved in this forced love triangle, I feel like she's a very wonderful, organic character. And when she starts having relationships with other parts of the team, those always run as much more authentic to me. This whole, they secretly love each other, but can't because reasons. It, it just always felt, again, weird and contrived. Because also, like, the, the premise of allegedly is that he can't, her because he's you know because she's a criminal and blah blah and it, it just felt weird it's like no you're, you're both criminals now i don't see why this is a problem so yeah the whole thing was just kind of awkward to me i i will the only thing i'm going to say that 
for that is that Nate refuses to admit that he's a criminal, I think, until the end of season two. Which also is a mildly contrived. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> anything else on this? No. The next day, Sophie meets him at the office building and leads him to a suite where several African men are seated around a table. As for anyone that's curious, if you've watched Ted Lasso, maybe look for someone that's in Ted Lasso in that scene. As the meeting <laughs> progresses, one of them writes something and hands it to Sophie, who gives it to Victor. He looks at it and sees a quote sum of a bunch of money he accepts. After he leaves, Nate regroups and says that they have a very long day tomorrow. That night, Victor finds and removes the transmitter. Sophie's deal was too good to be true, and he knew it. He realizes that his employees survive their payment, and he knows none of the deal is real, not even the Nigerian ambassador. He contacts the FBI, planning on exposing Sophie and the team at the next meeting. At the shareholders meeting the next day, Sophie brings the Nigerian to Victor's office. When he gets there, he calls the FBI in to take care of the con artist only to have them arrest him instead for soliciting bribes from government officials. He protests that, they, that they're fake, but the Nigerians produce their passports, revealing them to be the genuine ambassadors while Sophie slips away. I'm pausing the before that. You sure? Yeah, let's go to flashbacks because right. I, I have a thought on this. In flashback, we discover, that, we discover that after the Nigerians arrived for their first meeting, but before Victor got the office, Elliot switched the signs from Boeing to Sophie's company. The entire time, the Nigerians were under the impression that Sophie was working for Victor. The Nigerians claimed that Victor was giving was given a request, requested bribe of $200,000 as Victor realizes that during the meeting, Sophie switched envelopes containing the check with a quote. In the end, the FBI enters the building while Nate and his crew disguised as FBI agents manage to take some papers out of the office. Nate then returns the plans to Pearson, who drops all charges against Nate's team, intending to start a, a lawsuit against Victor instead. As Nate leaves, Pearson assumes he wants money, but Nate tells him that they have an alternative revenue source. As Victor watches FBI agents digging through his office, he receives a call. It's Nate who informs him that he should have just paid them, and if he rats them out to the FBI, they won't be as nice next time. Victor hangs up and tells the FBI that that was nobody on the phone. After, after regrouping the team, everyone discovers that they have checks that are way higher than expected. Hardison informs them that he played the stock market to maximum profit. Checks in hand, the team splits again, only to come right back, telling Nate they had a great time working as a team and want to do one more job. And Sophie suggests that they bad guys have to have money too, so we could take them down. Meeting with their first client, Nate explains their purpose. We provide leverage. So, uh, I want to go through the flashback because I want to talk about the the Nigerian switch because this is the, the one of the this is this episode's version of here's how it's part of the plan all along, right? And I'm honestly conflicted about this point because. One of the conceits of heist films is that it intentionally lies to the audience. We, the audience is missing information, and then once the twist is revealed, and then it goes back and shows you a key piece of information that just wasn't present before. And 
I have to remember that heist films are structured differently from mysteries, but there's a lot of like the Venn diagram is almost a yeah. circle, but there are slivers. And this is one of the slivers on the heist film side, uh, because in a mystery, that would be cheating. That would be, that's not playing fair. So it is mildly frustrating because it's like, you didn't show me that. I couldn't possibly have seen that. Um, because if you watch the scene where Sophie does this, um, she gets handed the envelope, the television cuts to her walking over to Victor and handing the envelope over. So the switch happens in the television cut. So the <laughs> medium of the, the, the program excised the information from me. So it's frustrating if you are thinking about that from that perspective. But if you're not, if you go, okay, it's a heist film, it's going to lie to me, then it becomes interesting because now the medium of television and or movies the way that their films are structured adds an interesting extra layer. What got removed from this cut? And each cut now becomes potentially interesting. It's like, okay, what, what did I miss here? What did I miss here? What did I miss here? And when you start to buy into that, you have a different game that emerges. And something you can do for future episodes of Leverage is that whenever Nate gets vague, that's probably where the information is hiding. <laughs> and sometimes for the less good episodes – it's the, okay, here's where the twist happens. And then you go like, oh, look, that's where the twist happens. Um, but times like this, where it's like, it, it's such a natural part of how we view television, we don't realize information was missing from that until we get revealed to that. So it's one of those, you have to buy into what's happening here from a structural standpoint to recognize this is actually clever and well done. But if you're looking at it just from a mystery standpoint, which I think most people first watching the show are probably expecting that structure, it comes across like, wait a minute, I wasn't told that. But aren't there two distinctive camps? Well, for this instance, two very specific cam camps of mysteries, one where they tell you all the facts and one where they give you some of the information. So making it impossible to figure true. out what's going on. True, true. I admit some of this is me coming from watching both, well, watching a lot of uh, uh, stuff like uh, Knives Out and Poker Face, which is all just pulling information on, on the screen. So I'm coming from that perspective but you're right some mystery shows very much like okay we're not gonna tell the audience and that's gonna be the big twist there's different styles of mystery but in this case the show is presenting itself like it's playing fair and then it's not which arguably is actually totally consistent with the show because that's what a con is the, con the show's literally yeah. conning you yeah <laughs> thank you for making my joke for me so i didn't have to say it <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to talk through all of that, and I kind of need all that information out there to kind of talk through all of that. Um, so but I, I think Leverage is genuinely clever for 2008-era television, but it takes – there's a lot of the show very clearly telling you what it wants to shoot so that when it's occasionally subtle, it sometimes gets lost in the noise. I mean, no, this is actually a subtle, interesting, clever thing here that's happening amidst all of the, the show being very brash because, again, it's a misdirection, right? It's straight-up misdirection. Look at all these cool, wacky, weird characters doing weird, wacky things. Oh, and by the way, is that just a plan all along? So I also don't remember when it came out. Well, the the newer version of Ocean's Eleven with mm -hmm. uh, Clooney and Pitt, but it also has very much that vibe to it associated with that in some of these scenes. Because even if you watch the new Ocean's Eleven movie, they have their own sort of high slash mystery plot, and you're not told everything during the course of that. Sure. I mean, all, uh, frankly, most of the structure goes back to the Italian job, right? Uh, that was kind of – I don't know if it's definite, but I'm pretty sure it, it's not – if not 
the first of the structure. It's certainly one of the first of the structure. I don't know. That, yeah, was, that Angelina Jolie seminal hit. Not was, that Italian job. The other Italian <laughs> job. <sighs> I killed myself. Right. Um, but, but I mean, again, like it, it's, it's interesting because like burn notice is not a heist film in structure. And it's interesting to watch these two in comparison because, like, on the surface, they're very similar shows, but the more you watch them, they're actually very different shows. Burn Notice is ultimately a spy film, and so spy films are about you, – you pretty much have the information, and you're just kind of watching Michael Weston go through the motions to, to resolve the spy film plan. This is a heist film, and so not even all the members of the team are necessarily in the plan, so the audience certainly is not always in the plan. And to the show's credit – Nate is also not always up on the plan either. Nate is, all, is not this eternally omniscient mastermind. Sometimes he also gets screwed over and finds out that the plan worked out well in spite of him or outside of his control. Well, I like that that, that is established at the very jump when we see that Nate and everyone else was conned by the aerospace engineer executive. Like that undercuts, no matter how skilled we talk about they are, it shows that they are fallible right away. And then you layer on top of that all of their incredible skills. So that helps balance them out immediately because otherwise it would be boring. If we right. thought, well, exactly. they're just always going to do it. Nah. Right, exactly. Is there anything else you want to touch about? Because we did the whole thing and it describes itself. It was It's a nice reveal. I think that this is probably one of the strongest pilots that we've seen and discussed on the show. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fair. This is one of the rare pilots where everything is is absolutely as correct like if despite the fact that it needs to establish things from a from a plot standpoint if you mix this in with the other episodes it wouldn't look out of place right this this is very much the show it, it all works it all works well um it buys you into the concept buys you into the characters yeah this is up there with like the space nine pilot in terms of this is absolutely the show you're going to watch one of the, the problems for me when we're doing for figuring out leverage episodes is I a leverage has a great team cast, but it quickly moves into individual set pieces for characters. Mm. And given the format of our show, my I wanted to focus on team episodes so we could see the entire team in action. Yeah. So that made it a little bit harder to figure out which episodes to do. So that's why I wanted to use a pilot to build the team. The next one for for personal reasons, which we'll get into. And then the last one, because it is a great capstone for the entire first season and it shows the team and it brings in a reoccurring antagonist. We're not mm -hmm. there yet for 13, but just want to build that. Plot. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. And I mean, for a television show, that makes sense, right? It's like you want to, you have five strong characters. You want to give them the spotlight and move that around again, like a tabletop game. Like it's interesting how, a someone who's heavily in tabletop games created this show and then this show that inspired a lot of people to redesign tabletop games based on things specific so stuff like the spotlight episode and whatnot we're now using more television language i don't think it's entirely because of leverage but certainly leverage was part of that sea change because a lot of people mapped on their expectations onto it so it's it's it, yeah in terms of that team dynamic it, it's good to it's hard to pull those out because a good television show won't stay in that format but from our, for our purposes, it does make things more challenging. Ready? Next episode.
Season one, episode two, the homecoming job. I'm just going to read all of this one and then we can go back okay. through it. Yep. A soldier, Robert Perry, is taping a message for home when someone opens fire. At the hospital, Perry tells Nate that it was a private contractor from a company called Castleman that shot him. And now the company won't pay for his, his rehabilitation. Since the official story is that it was insurgents. Nate calls the team together. Hardison, sorry, Nate calls Hardison. Hardison calls a crew together, bringing them into their new offices of Leverage Consulting and Associates, hands him their new covers, and walks them through the amazing dream office that I've always wanted to work in. <laughs> he shows them the Perry's video about the attack. Elliot confirms that it was a contractor's, and Nate sends him after documentation needed to keep to keep a big to keep a big lie going while Parker and Hardison break into Castleman's office. Sophie mingles with Castleman CEO, Charles and his contact in the Congress at a social gathering, presenting herself as representative of an overseas company. They were discussing appropriation bill 718 and Nate distracts him while Sophie lifts a security card from his wallet. With that, Hardison is able to get into the computer while Parker needs a pass ah, a passphrase in his voice with his voice to open the safe, Elliot tricks him into saying the syllables she needs with a couple of ex- expressions of "f u fuck." Inside the <laughs> safe, they find photos of Perry and Nate. Realizes the cover up isn't about a shooting; it's about what was being transported. Perry is a witness, and Castleman will be coming after him at the hospital. Nate and Sophie get Perry out while Elliot. Realizes a couple of doctors wearing the wrong kind of shoes, combat boots, must be the hitman and moves to intercept them. After Perry is secured, they go through the hitman stuff. They were going to kill Perry and make it look like a suicide. They decide to go after the congressman and turn and turn him and Defoy against each other. Sophie goes after Jenkins while Nate talks to Defoy Defort. Harrison checks on the congressman's congressman's finances, and while he doesn't discover there's any actual bribes, he is getting the sweetest deal on renovations for his house, which I myself would like, having recently had work done and know how expensive it is. Elliot decides to have some some fun and cancel one of his orders for building materials. Meanwhile, Parker is putting a modified Bill 718 into the congressional box. Eddie. I'm, yes. I'm breaking from that. Eddie, do you realize that I'm going to put that in a game? I don't know what game or where it's going to go, <laughs> oh, but I'm putting oh, that in a game. Like a bill? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after the bill is submitted, Jenkins is not happy and calls Detroit to let him know. Listening to their phone calls, they find out there's a shipment sitting in a shipyard in Los Angeles. The cause of the, the, cause of the whole incident, whatever they're covering up, is in that shipping container. Elliot, Harrison, and Parker make their way to the container to find a stack of money inside. Nate knows where it came from. The government sent it to Iraq for reconstruction. Nine billion dollars went missing, and they're willing to kill for it. Back at the shipping yard, Nate and Sophie distract Castleman's guards. Harrison and Parker go after the container while Jenkins arrives to look for his missing shipment. Moments later, an explosion goes off. The guards race to the container to find it empty. Meanwhile, Jenkins and Detroit run into each other. They exchange angry words when suddenly a posse of reporters approach. Apparently, the congressman called them, but the empty container isn't the right one. It's the one next to it. And he happened to have a key, which Elliot gave him earlier, in disguise. 
They opened the container revealing the money and began to spin a tale of uncovering corruption in Iraq. And as they do, everyone's cell phones go off. And recording of their conversation from earlier, where they're accusing each other and admitting their crime, is played to the reporters. And the reporters started asking Jenkins what's going on. And all he can say is, oh, crap. Back at the hospital, the team present the money to Perry, the doctor, and the rest of the veterans there that all their rehabilitation needs will be paid for. And the team says to Nate, we'll do one more job. One more job. One more job. You said you had uh, personal reasons for this one. So I'm curious what they are. I, mean, I, think, I think I know what they are, but I'm curious what they are. So as, as a veteran, when I got back, one of the things that I needed to do was I needed for the VA to do something for me. And I put mm-hmm. in a request after request and nothing happened. And I think I got a call from them about six years ago. And for anyone that knows me, I was in the military considerably longer time before than that. So mm-hmm. it was a number of years before they called for my own issue, which mm-hmm. at that point in time, I had already found another way to deal with. And that is an ongoing issue right now that there is not funding or care given to veterans when they come home at all. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you as a veteran coming home, they do not necessarily receive the warmest of receptions from people at home after their service is done either. So to see a, a show in its second episode tackle something that was close to my heart will make this an episode I'll always choose. It may not be like the greatest episode of Leverage, but it is one of the more poignant episodes of Leverage. I honestly feel like this is extremely well chosen, right? Like because episode one is all about let's get the team together and we're taking down uh, a corrupt airline business. But that's still a little abstract, right? Ultimately, it's I want to get revenge on this guy who screwed me, and we end up benefiting another rich business owner, which is it, it helps to, to get the satisfaction, but it's not emotionally cathartic. So then to have the second episode be like, you know, this is a, a cause that we as viewers can really get strongly behind, and also it is ripped from the headlines, as it were, um, you know, about the abuses of private contractors, um, like the missing money thing is a real thing, like like the, the, the shipping cash to iraq was a real thing that happened but sorry no still happening um so this is all timely uh and it's something that the audience can kind of get behind and also watching a politician uh who gets kickbacks to a private military corporation gift has come up and these are all satisfying cathartic things so when the team goes we want to do one more job we as the audience are yes we want you to do more jobs we want you to do this um this is the most robin hood uh, of the early episodes in a lot of ways. And so putting this episode two is, is extremely important. And I think very well chosen. Thank you. And having been overseas and making goofy recordings that you're sending back home, <laughs> it's, it, it makes me smile up until the time when the shots are fired. Cause even as a viewer, you know, something's about to happen, but getting to see that camaraderie between troops is, it's fun. For me. Again, extremely fast. Like you, you care about this guy in like five minutes. It, it, it the show's very efficient in what it puts on screen to get people behind these characters who are introduced very quickly. Um, because I mean, I checked; all of his episodes are forty minutes long. That's not a lot of time, and for a heist film style thing, a lot of that time has to be spent to the heist. So you don't have a lot of time to get behind the client. And for- it, I mean, to, to its credit, at the end of the first episode, it presented a client, presented a case, and then didn't show you anything with that, right? 
Um, so we actually care about this case that you never see. So it's just really uh, the writers are really good at getting that that efficiency of character across. So you bring up the end of the first episode, and this not being that, I love that. That is what it should have done because that shows you there's a slew of adventures and cases that are going on that you as a viewer aren't seeing, which for one, lets you know that they're bonding over those things as a viewer. But for two, for a company side, it lets them make other media. Like they can make their comic books. They can make audio adventures. Like that is phenomenal. That is what Doctor Who should have always done, but doesn't always do. Right. Yeah. Doctor Who, when it is doing well it's the we're only watching the interesting adventures of the doctor and there's a whole bunch of adventures we should be seeing between those that are just not as interesting this implication does the same thing which is that the leverage crew are occasionally just doing jobs and they just knock it out of the park they go in they just do the thing they they, they screw the person they hand over the money or whatever to the client and they move on and we don't watch that because nothing interesting happens they just are do the job do the job well we're only watching the ones where there's something interesting that happens as a result of that but you're right it implies non-viewed adventures with this crew and it gives them more depth and also allows the the television crew to say we don't have to track every single step of like the emotional arc for example because we're not going to watch every Mm -hmm. single episode so we can nudge them forward a little bit on things and we don't have to explain why they've been nudged forward and a, a different point before we move too far ahead if anyone is curious the Soldiers that we're looking at are probably all enlisted, which means they make shit pay. And how they're saying mm-hmm. they probably make $7 a day, those will make 70 That is a good scale. Because when I was over there, we made jack shit and we had contractors. And the contractors were making a lot of money. And you talk with the contractors and they talk about like how much their money, how much they're making, how their living conditions are generally better, things like that. So it's a on point in a short period of time. But I, I'll move on instead of rehapping <laughs> re- recapping that continuously no i i think that's great but but uh, it, it's, it's good context and it was nice to see that people even as nate goes in to talk to him people are trying to shoo him away because they think he's just trying to take advantage of a wounded veteran and like yeah. that shows that this is a person that cares about the veterans and is doing her damnedest with next to nothing to look out for them because in a real world which they're trying to present here no one does what the leverage crew is doing People just don't right. help other people other goodness of their hearts. And that reinforces what they're doing is unusual, even in their own world and context. Mm-hmm. We also, we skipped over a little bit is as we do get the uh, leverage office. It is amusing that the way we view this, we get the leverage office and then it's going to go away before the next episode we've watched. <laughs> but the leverage office was kind of, it was, it was kind of a, a necessity of television, right? It's like we need to have a, a standing set that we can do regular things without having to rebuild new sets each time. So it's a natural thing in television, but it became a character in its own right. Including, again, one of the things I love is that because this show knows what it is, the completely over-the-top computer graphics that Hardison will always trot out in these episodes. <laughs> it's like we have six screens, and we're going to show all these files go by. And it's like, that's not how computers work at all. But okay, you know what? I get that that's, these aren't, Real world computers, these are leverage world computers. That is how all computers should function. I state that <laughs> unequivocally right now. Should and do are everywhere. different things. <laughs> well, true. I'm not going to say they do because they don't, but I want it. <laughs> and it is another quick note that we get insight into Elliot's skill set where he can recognize the guns just by the sounds they make. So, like mm-hmm. reinforcing high level of competence. Right. 
do you want to talk more about the middle of the episode? Because I, I, I want to I have a point near the end. Nah, we can we can skip ahead. I could I could go into it, but it then goes back to what we talked about before. Like how much of the actual heist pieces do we want to go into specifically? Because we could right. go down into the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah, the, 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 I want to characterize two heist pieces because one thing this episode is really good for is showing that there are two main beats of a heist film and how they intersect with each other leads to some tension, uh, which is the overly complicated beat and the overly simple beat. And if you do too much of one or the other, a heist gets a little samey, but if you balance them, it's really good. And so, for example, here is the, the overly simple beat is we just blew up the container next to it, but because the numbers are on the doors and the doors open, cover up the numbers, we don't see the numbers. And so when the door comes over, it's a nice reveal because it's the uh, the audience goes, I should have seen that, <laughs> even though there's no way you should have seen that. But you feel like, oh, yeah, wow, that's clever because it's so simple. Immediately followed by the quote-unquote empty truck, which has a roll of paper that looks like the inside of the truck over front of the money, <laughs> which is ludicrously overcomplicated. <laughs> But, but but next to each other, both look clever. If it was all fake empty trucks, it would look like an extremely elaborate heist that's just extremely elaborate heist. But it's the the constant balance of extremely simple things that everyone should have seen through and extremely complicated things that no one could have possibly have figured out. It all looks very clever and intricate. <laughs> I I love that. That is that is true and pretty funny. But to touch back, I guess, on some of the other piece of the episode, how did you like the big Elliot's big fight scene? We're going to see Elliot fight the first one versus security guards, now versus a couple of highly trained soldiers. The fight, honestly, the fight scenes I like because they're not... Okay, one thing I like about Elliot's fight scenes is that generally they're brutal, right? Not vicious. And there's a difference to me. Uh, it's not... I'm going to hurt you to hurt you. Elliot's goal is to incapacitate people as fast as possible and by any means necessary. And so the fight scenes are kind of short and perfunctory. And I like that because Elliot's not there to be flashy. Elliot's not there to, to have, do elaborate, cool fight scenes. It's to take people down quickly, which works really well with a television budget <laughs> for, for <laughs> choreography, right? But the other thing I like is that um, it that ties to another point we see a little bit of in this episode too is the actors have had enough training to pull off some of the stuff that their characters are asked to do in a way that the camera's not to cut away, particularly pickpocketing. Like there's lots of, in this episode in particular, there's lots of really good lifting badges and putting things on people. And the camera does not cut away. to like a close-up of them putting it in the pocket and cutting back. We watch Parker in particular, just do it on screen with no cuts. Same with, Elliot's fighting. There are obviously cuts for tension purposes, but it's very clear that the actors had some training in martial arts, so it all looks authentic, and you don't have to cut away or give in a, 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 a double or fighting substitute or whatever. It all you see the actor in those moments, so it all it adds a level of reality, which I think is necessary for this wildly elaborate heist film pastiche. And as we mentioned it for Barnards, have to mention it again here. I am a sucker for captions describing people. I am. <laughs> I, I can't help myself. I when I change them, I always giggle. It's, yep. it's a thing that's intrinsic to me. 
is there anything about this episode? I know that we sort of breeze through this one quickly, but I am going to take the next one beat by beat because it's sort of the first season finale. Yeah, let's let's jump to the next one because I think uh, there's more high stuff to talk about there. All right. So before I go into this one, I'm going to take a minute to talk about the first David job. The first David job is where the team is going to attempt to start taking on IYS, which is Nate's former company. Mm-hmm. They create a fake David statue to try to convince him to go and buy that. We get another encounter with Sterling, who is equivalently Nate that works for the insurance company, who we can talk about in a minute when we get there. I see Eddie Jones to talk about yeah. Sterling. Yep. And through the course of that episode, we discover that Sophie had her own plan to steal the real David and was conning the team and working someone with Sterling. Sterling captures part of the team. They manage to free themselves and they break for like, they separate the team completely and everyone's running their own ways. And that is when we come into this, the second David episode. Mm-hmm. After, after a meeting regarding the new security system of the museum, Ian Blackpool making James Sterling, IYS's new vice president of security, Nate comes to visit them in Sterling's office. He tells Blackpool that he's going to rob the two Davids gallery on opening day, but Blackpool refuses to call the police and mocks Nate for his son's death. They argue about Blackpool's refusal to pay for his son's treatment, but Blackpool just laughs it off saying that it's company policy. Nate makes one makes a one-time offer that he must resign as CEO and donate all of his assets to charity. In return, he won't rob the museum. Blackpool refuses and Nate leaves. Meanwhile, the former crew are planning their own theft, but end up bumping into each other and getting themselves nearly caught in the process. Luckily, Nate arrives in front of the museum just in time for them to escape in his car. I, I love this scene, but yet, go ahead and you thought first. I'm just going to point out something that I was waiting to for this moment is that throughout the course of the, throughout the, course of the sh- episodes, we constantly see the team running out and Nate is always pulling up in the car. Like that is mm. a reoccurring gag, much how the walkaway is sort of a reoccurring gag. Mm. And it is nice to see that here it is him bringing the team back together using that humor that they're building on the relationship from. Right. Uh, the other thing, the other thing I love is um, how this episode subverts expectations, right? Cause it, cause it uses, like you said, running gags um, a lot. Uh, the other thing is it also plays into Nate's alcoholism. Right. Um, at this point, he has acknowledged somewhat his alcoholism. The team has at least pointed it out to him a couple of times. Sophie, I know, has at least pointed out to him at least once by this point. But we also know that Nate is not afraid to step in and con people himself directly. Right? He's not afraid to get his hands dirty in that front. So we see him come in drunk, berating his former employer. And so at first, it's like, okay, is he just drunk after the last episode and spouting out? Then we see the team doing their team stuff. It's like, oh no, this is part of a plan. And then we see the team are actually <laughs> running into each other. And it's like, oh no, no, Nate's really drunk. And then he pulls up in the car and it's like, okay, is it the plan? And you don't <laughs> know how much of this is Nate's plan and how much of this is just him going off. And that tension actually carries through almost the entire episode which is interesting because you spent 12 episodes establishing Nate as the master planner and you have managed in the course of 10 minutes to undermine, is he actually in control of the situation? 
Beautiful. I want to take a minute to talk about Parker's leap from like the second or third story down in front of Sophie. Like that was, oh, I, I loved it. The beautiful, the, where did you just come from? Oh. Again, one thing that shows us really well is that, uh, again, competency porn is that they have now reached a point where they don't need to show sometimes the middle bits. Like there are, there have been other gags. I think we skipped over where uh, the hitter will just go into a room. You hear pounding noises and he'll walk out. You you know what happens in that room. You don't need to explain it. You don't need to show it anymore. And same thing. It's like Parker just does acrobatic shit. Like, you know, it's okay. She just jumps from three stories. We you just accept that now. That's just what they do. And we don't need to explain it anymore. It just is. You know, uh, 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 Hardison just having information on hand. You just now accept that as read. Um, so it's nice to show, establish how competent they are, and then slowly starts paring away the less interesting parts of their job and just saying they just do it. And so again, from a role-playing perspective, this is where we start to see more of the you only role if it's interesting dynamic coming in because it's the, if you're a hacker and you want computer information, unless there's a reason why you can't have it, you just have it. And we're seeing that now on the screen. It's, it's fascinating. It's also a great way to cut down on budget expense from a TV perspective. Really is. Super interesting how that works. <laughs> or Hardison could also just have mansions lying around. Later, they meet at the mansion <laughs> that Hardison bought as his new safe house that used to be MC Hammer's house and asked Nate how he, and asked Nate how he knew. Nate tells him that the security system has not been full, is not fully operational, so this is the best time to try to pull off a heist. Everyone argues over whether or not they could have pulled off the con, except Nate, who instead tells him that the details of the new security system. The team realizes that there is a restoration room directly below the museum and decide to use it to their advantage. But since the museum's personnel and security staff will recognize all of them, they need a new face. Parker suggests Maggie, Showing up in the previous episode was Maggie, who is Nate's ex-wife, who is also the other cast member from the Nero Wolf show that I mentioned previously. Uh, and okay. Sophie agrees since she recently bumped into her, and Maggie works in the at the rest in the restoration room at the museum. Blackpool introduces Sterling to Doctor Lloyd and Maggie, and explains to them that a new security how the new security functions. Blackpool added that all the paintings around the two Davids belong to him or a client from IYS and is committed to protecting them at all costs. Just then, Maggie receives a call from Dr. Sinclair, Elliot's cover from the other night, to have a cup of coffee with him. Maggie agrees. This chunk, I genuinely don't know how much of it is accidental and how much of it is intentional and how frustrating I am. it is. because. So what happens is uh, we have a scene, like I talked about before, of the clumsily written, where they they have the plans that we can't see, and Nate's will be effective. Do you see do you see that part there? And it points to the in a way that we can't see the audience, and the rest of the team goes, oh, yeah, and nods, and they start playing. It's like, <laughs> this is where the twist comes in, obviously. And so I'm so annoyed at that that I miss completely the head IWS, or IYS saying, yeah, I own all of these paintings. And then just <laughs> stepping over that line, which is vital to the actual resolution of the episode. And so I'm like, I got mad about the thing that didn't matter to the episode. That I missed the thing that did matter to the episode. I don't know how much of that is intentional and how much of that is just good editing. But I was even more mad when I realized it because I'm like, ah, that was so good. <laughs> I think it's intentional. That is the most Ryan Johnson move that I've seen in leverage these three episodes so far. It is like, so fucking Ryan that bearing the lead on. Like, that is such a good one. 
oh, loved it. But again, and, like it, 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 the show is now using the, the the audience's knowledge of the tropes against it. That's what's so interesting about this episode is that you have to understand how the show works to get confused by this episode. Because if you don't know how the show the episode works, it just looks pretty straightforward. But if you are expecting the twist and they just not happening or they happen in different ways, you're now caught up into it because you know how this style of show works. It's 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 fascinating. And our listeners may consider this to be a coincidence, but it's not. The one of the reasons I chose this episode, not only because it is a brilliant episode, is but I knew the episodes of of Bird Notice that Eddie picked, and I was like, oh, I got him. <laughs> and so you may recognize a certain FBI agent from Leverage and a certain bank robber. I'm sorry, from Burn Notice, an FBI agent and a bank robber in this episode. Yes, I even sent a screen cap to Chris because I didn't know that until I started watching it. <laughs> And, and this is where I got my. There's only ten actors in 2008, apparently, um, because yeah, it, it, it's it's both actors in another episode about a heist, effectively, because that's what the <laughs> last episode of Bruno's we watched was. And I haven't checked the dates, but like they probably filmed these within like a few months of each other. <laughs> so, and it is the incredible. God, I forgot his name now. Mark Shepard. As mm -hmm. Sterling, who becomes a recurring villain on the, in throughout the entire series, throughout the entire run, and it is shown that Sterling is nearly as smart as Nate. He almost becomes Nate's Moriarty in a sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things I cannot figure out is how Mark Shepard never got his own series. I I just don't get it. Well, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I I love every time Mark Shepard shows up. I was like, oh, it's Mark Shepard, you know, or more accurately, it's usually, oh, it's that guy in the Google. I'm like, oh yeah, his name's Mark Shepard. That's usually how it works. But I'm always excited to see him. But he's always basically playing Mark Shepard. Right? <laughs> I mean, th there's not a ton of range, which is fine. When you cast him in roles where he needs to be Mark Shepard, he's excellent at being Mark Shepard. Nobody else can do a better Mark Shepard than Mark Shepard. But well, really, did, has, do you know that uh, Chris Pratt is always playing Chris Pratt? Or I completely agree. Robert Redford, regardless of how great people think he is, was always playing Robert Redford. <laughs> it's I understand that, but also like what Mark Shepard brings to the table is very specific to kind of cult television. Um, I, I do think you could build a cult TV show around him. I, I think you absolutely could. Um, but a lot of the Mark Shepardness is being the kind of weaselly bad guy that you secretly root for. <laughs> what if I what if I present to you Mark Shepard as Harry Dresden? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I don't know if you can do the accent. I've seen Paul Blackthorne. I've seen Paul Blackthorne play Harry Dresden. I think Mark Shepard could play Harry Dresden. Uh, Paul Blackthorne has the slightly more range. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say a lot. Slightly. <laughs> Alright. Alright. Game right now. I challenge you. What is the Mark Shepard television vehicle that could run for five seasons go okay do, 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 so, I, do, so i have mark shepherd's contract do, do. in hand he's like i want i want a tv show for five seasons i'm like okay cool mark shepherd I, I have 50 bucks in pocket i'll, I'll buy your contract <laughs> it's a work for anything uh honestly i could see him as kind of a i could see him as kind of like a, a sci-fi detective character right like kind of a 
I'll say Dashiell Hammett style, but honestly, uh, a Philip Marlowe style character uh, in, in a kind of a sci-fi setting, um, a bit like uh, what's his name in The Expanse. Oh, got you. Yeah, the guy that the guy that played the Punisher. Right. Yeah. Tom Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane, but I couldn't think of the character name. Um, but yeah, like like that kind of character centering the show around him, where he just goes around and and uh, does kind of shady shit in the name of good. I can see him do that. In a different world where they recentered Fallout, I could see him being a detective. Are you talking not in space? But if you played Fallout Four, there is a synthoid detective Nick. Oh, who is, I could see him doing that role. Oh yeah, uh, a, a robot or yeah, Nick Valentine. Or a, a synthoid. He has like the whole synth look to him, but it's very much in that sort of nineteen forties, nineteen fifties detective mold. Yeah, there's a there's a Netflix series that's kind of that conceit too. So yeah, I could see him doing that. There's something about him that sort of puts off a, a cheap noir detective vibe. It's funny that we both <laughs> went for cheap noir detective though. <laughs> it's it's true, uh, but he brings a lot of charisma to whatever he does. So and I like that. Yep. Anything else about this part? Uh, no, that that was kind of the main thing about that. That, All right. that bit. However, as Maggie and Elliot meet up with each other, Maggie starts ragging on Nate, even his sexual performance, and mention that he forgot she gave him that same camera button that Elliot is using. Back at the mansion, Nate and Maggie argue while the team listens, then go out to the garden to have a serious talk. Nate tells Maggie that when their son was at stage four, he found a treatment that could help him, and Blackpool had it. Blackpool refused, despite Nate's having worked for them 20 years and saying it was supposedly experimental treatment. So he blames mm. himself. Maggie starts crying, asking why he didn't tell her, and Nate responds that he is worried that she'd hate him as much as he hates himself. The only thing Maggie can do is comfort him. Meanwhile, Sterling finds out that Maggie got a call from Elliot's old number. I'm stopping because we're going to get to the real meat here in a second. <laughs> Uh, this is where I, I start to apply the stick to Nathan Ford because this is the smart people are really stupid trope that I, I don't mm -hmm. think sometimes. Um, for someone who really understands people really well, he just figure out maybe having a five-minute conversation with his wife about the death of his son would have solved a lot of fucking problems. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's – like if it had been – okay – we're not going to cover this and we, we have some shit on you. So you're going to voluntarily retire and never speak to anybody about this. And we finally talked to anyone, even your wife, then we're going to do horrible things to you or to your wife that I would have bought. And it would have fit really well with leverage and even more reason to hate iOS, but it's just, I, I think you would hate me as much as I hate myself. Dude, you're an alcoholic drunk who left his <laughs> wife. I, I think the hate meter is pretty full. There's not much more you could put in that tank. <laughs> I, this is the weakest part, I think, of the entire series. Like, mm -hmm. the, they didn't have a reason why they should, why they weren't together and everything else, and they sort of contrived this. And it falls down. And frankly, I mean, so uh, we kind of skipped over. Maggie talked a lot of shit about Nate, and, and it's played a little bit like, I mean, to, to, to the show's credit, they don't play her as being unreasonable. But the show's try shooting for there are two sides of the story. But throughout this episode, I'm like, no, Maggie's right. He's a controlling, manipulative, alcoholic, abusive asshole. I completely with Maggie. She absolutely should have divorced him. Mm -hmm. uh, and the end of the episode doesn't 
entirely redeem that. I mean, it's like the, no, you, you still had very strong reasons to leave Nate, and they're all valid. And then for them to kind of use this as a springboard to the Nate-Sophie relationship just makes you want to go, Sophie, just run, just run. <laughs> don't don't go that way because <laughs> I saw how he treated Maggie. I'm kind of on Maggie's side with this. Don't and he, and he's doing a lot of the you know I, I've changed. I'll do better. But alcoholics always say that, right? And that that's the part that really gets me is that this combination of character traits really gives strong abuser vibes. And then to find out the stuff that Timothy Hutton did is just like it's <sighs> it just it just doesn't land well at all no after explaining the plan maggie tells him they need dr lloyd's permission to enter the restoration room maggie questions nate's leadership but the team assumes she's joking back at the museum parker manages to switch dr lloyd's glasses while maggie checks up on him jessen dr lloyd notices his glasses are blurry as sophie talks to him distracted sterling catches parker's meeting with maggie on camera and goes after her Sophie lies that the sarcophagus of the Pharaoh is cursed and sells the deal uh, and sells the deal. Maggie says that the symptoms are, are congestion, memory loss, blurry vision. Shocked, Dr. Loyal, Dr. Lloyd seals up the sarcophagus in the restoration room, unaware the workers are actually the leverage team. Back at the mansion, while the crew gets ready, Sophie tries to apologize to Elliot, but Parker and Harrison tell her that she, she apologized to them first and screwed up the speech. He eventually forgives her. On opening day, while Blackpool introduces his art and the two Davids, Sterling's right-hand man goes through what Sterling says about Nate's crew. Sterling thinks that someone is hiding in the sarcophagus, but it's actually a real mummy inside. Do you know how much damage he would have caused? There is no way they could afford to pay for that. Oh my God, so much damage. The team was already in the museum in disguise when Sterling passed them. Suddenly, a gas fills the two David's case as a security alert goes off, prompting everyone to escape. Nate gives a signal once everyone evacuates. Closed, Blackpool and Sterling have to exit the museum while Nate and his crew successfully infiltrate the place. Worse, everyone in the museum seems to have copies of the David sculpture. Once they manage to open the security locks, Blackpool and Sterling, Maggie and Dr. Lloyd and the guards appear to see the two Davids inside the case with Nate standing right beside it. Do you want me to finish? Do you want to pause here? Because I went over a lot. Uh, Let's pause here because I love the fact that this is straight out of the Arsene Lupin stories. (laughs) It's it's a classic, but it's a great classic, which is the, I'm I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm going to do. What? Who's Lupin? What if I don't know who Lupin is? Uh... Start reading read good literature. <laughs> I seen Le Pen was a series was a protagonist of a series of French stories in the late nineteenth century. It was a contemporary to Sherlock Holmes to the point where the author straight up stole Sherlock Holmes, got called out for the IP theft, and came up with the innovative new name of Herlock Holmes, <laughs> which itself is now in the public domain and can be used with the estate's blessing. So if you want to rip off Sherlock Holmes and piss off the Sherlock Holmes estate, that's how you do it. Uh, Got my next but, book. Yeah, um, that that that's a whole thing about that in video games that I love. But anyway, uh, the uh, meat of it is that uh, there's like nine or ten novels of Arsene Lupin, and there's a lot of classic uh, con stuff that comes from the Arsene Lupin stories. And one of them is itself homage to the Purloined Letter, which is I'm going to straight up tell you what I'm going to do. You're going to plan for the thing that I've told you I'm going to do, and I'm not going to do that. 
Eddie, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there a TV show on Netflix called Lupin? There is, and it's fantastic. That started four years ago, and I think they have season three right now? Yeah. No, Lupin is great. It is a French-language television show. It has a fantastic black lead. It is a modern-day character. It's not Arsene Lupin reimagined for day. It's a character who was inspired by the Lupin stories. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's fucking wonderful, and I love Lupin irrationally. I almost suggested it for this, but I decided against it. I haven't watched season three yet, so that's the only reason I didn't. Either have I. It. I, I, I haven't watched it either, but I, it's it's sadly Doctor Who took up my Lupin watching time, but that is next on my queue. What took up my extra watching time was me watching Silo. One more gag about this: Isn't there an anime called something the third? Hmm. Yes, uh, Lupin III, which I've actually not watched much of, uh, even though lots of people tell me I should. It's not bad. They're 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 funny. They're pretty interesting. All right, to, I've digressed you into a weird Lupin sort of loop. Please go back to your more pertinent point. The Lupin loop. Oh God! <laughs> I make the bad jokes on this podcast, sir. I make the- um. Uh, no. Uh. I. Again, this is. A great example of the, the sh- because of the uncertainty at the beginning of the episode with we weren't sure how Nate is going to go. And, and again, Maggie bringing excellent points about Nate being overbearing and controlling and the team supporting him. But there's a strong question mark behind it. And on top of that, uh, a lot of the team having a very valid beef with Sophie from her favorite last episode and that being resolved. You don't know how much of this is the, the heist going wrong and how much of this is the heist going as planned until you walk in, you see him with the two Davids there and say, okay, this is clearly the plan, but wait a minute. They didn't do the thing they said they were going to do. <laughs> so it's, it's, it, it's a great, the, 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 the stakes are constantly shifting throughout the episode. So the audience is just disoriented as the, the characters they're working against, which is a great balance. And you're surprised that con, art, con artists and thieves didn't do what they told you they were going to do. Shocked, I say. Like, shocked. You know, that's one of the reasons why I love that gag so much because it's like you have no reason to believe this, but then you you have to go. But what if they're telling the truth this one time? And so it, it's, it's such a simple thing to do, and it always works. <laughs> Any other comments about the heist? Parker handing out fake Davids or anything like that? That is a great moment, though. All right. But as the lights turn on, they see the paintings are missing. Shocked! Dr. Lloyd intends to call the police, but Blackpool stops him since the well-being of the paintings was his responsibility. Sterling realizes that Nate's plan was never about the Davids. It was to steal the paintings, which are worth $150 million, had all been insured by IYS and all belonged to either Blackpool or IYS's clients. Angered, Blackpool takes out a gun and points it at Nate. And everyone quickly leaves the room, leaving only Blackpool, Nate, and Sterling. Nate negotiates with Sterling, but Blackpool says that if IYS want, wants their paintings back, they have to strip Blackpool's assets and his position in the company. And they have to end the policy of denying every claim. Sterling assumes it's extortion, but Nate corrects him. It's oversight. He takes out the recording of Blackpool refusing to call the cops when Nate told him about the robbery. If the owners find out that the art had been stolen and Blackpool knew about the robbery but refused to do anything, they'll sue him and the company. 
but if he returns to paintings, they might not fire Sterling if he pins the blame on Blackpool. Sterling laughs, and Blackpool angrily tells him that he works for IYS and Blackpool. Nate takes his gun away, quotes Blackpool on his responsibility to the shareholders, and asks Blackpool if he really thinks Nate's afraid of him, especially since he's lost his only son. Blackpool appeals to Maggie, who's coming to the room, but she punches him instead and finds it immensely satisfying, making a quip about therapy. Sterling tells Nate he'll call him once it's done, while Nate leaves the museum without being arrested. At night, Nate and Maggie wait in the museum. Nate gets a call from Sterling that Blackpool's finished, while Nate says it's time to return the paintings. He reveals a hidden hole under one of the benches that leads right below the storage room. Back to the, beside the restoration room. What Sterling didn't realize is that the sarcophagus that he had checked blocks the door in the storage room that the team had used. Hardison tells Nate that they plan to drop the paintings off at the loading dock to make it look like someone from the outside did it. In the end, the team members meet up at the airport hangar and reluctantly begin to walk away, but fade to black. Right. So the reason why I brought up the contrast of complex versus simple heists is is for this moment here at the ends because what happened was sterling assumed the complicated plan was in play but in fact the simple plan was in play which is just take the pennings and shove them in a room and block the door but sterling was like oh, they're gonna drill holes through the bottom of the, the thing <laughs> and whatnot what and at first, I was frustrated because I'm like, so the whole hollow thing was a complete blind, and you're lying to the audience explicitly. But I realized, no, that was still valid for the gas component. They mm-hmm. still pumped the gas in. Um, it was just that then we missed the whole part where Nate's like, and then we're going to show the paintings in this room over here in the block it with, with the sarcophagus. And that, we missed that piece. Uh, but it's, it, it, again, because the audience knows there's always a balance of complicated and simple set pieces happening here. And Sterling, who is Nate's equal, says this is the complicated plan. We assume that he's rumbled the plan when, in fact, that was not the plan at all. Beautiful. Yeah. And it gives, I guess, resolution to Nate and his wife also throughout the course of the episode. Eh. Uh, It was satisfying to have Nate use the CEO's words against him. That piece I thought was very valid. But again, it's the, uh, why you think I'm afraid of you, even at the lost my own son. It's like, because you have at least four other people you explicitly care about. And also your ex-wife is still here and literally in the same building as you. I think you still have <laughs> quite a lot to worry about my friends. Yeah. But then that doesn't, I guess, sound badass, but, it's the thing is that whenever Nate tries to be a badass, it just doesn't feel right. No, he's definitely the, a great planner from their skill sets, but I enjoy the ending. I have some quibbles with it. Like I, I given the show, nothing but compliments primarily up to here. The ending falls a little flat, but not completely. And it's still a solid resolution for a series for a show that was basically built to be a one season show with the potential to be more because they didn't know they're getting additional seasons and it right. tells you a complete arc, which is, was an objective and it knocked that objective out of the park. Right. Yeah. It does a good job of selling its initial conceit of corporations don't care about people. Corporations care about profits. 
Um, and the only way people can take care of themselves by taking uh, justice in their own hands. All those things are checked off and, and squared away at the end of the episode uh, by using Sterling against his other rival uh, and using the corporate structure as the way to make that happen. That all hoisting your own batard moment works. The whole emotional through line through all this of, of Nate's son, it just feels tacked on and it, it doesn't it feels the most tacked on when it's allegedly resolved. Because Maggie doesn't she makes one comment about it was my son too. But otherwise seems to show zero remorse about the fact that her son died. Mm-hmm. And it's like and she's just okay working with I mean, she's like, I didn't know that they refused to pay out. But she had to have, like, wh- why did the insurance money never show up? I mean, that, that question had to have come up at some point, right? And now that she works so close to it, I was like, hey, since I'm here, whatever happened to the money that was supposed to go to pay for my son's illness? I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, she, she clearly was kind of brought in purely to act as an emotional piece for nate's story and so she feels very separate and like the fact at the end when her only response is to punch the guy out i'm like that's it it feels almost like we don't know what to do here because nagy has some extremely valid concerns that she should absolutely be voicing but she's not a character she is a prop in nets character and nate's character arc and that's pretty clear and that's unfortunate because the little bits we see of maggie she seems like a genuinely interesting and cool character and highly perceptive because that's what we get from her noticing the camera button on Elliot's shirt. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, I think what they were doing is that for 2008, 2009 television, that was a move they could easily have gotten away with. And so they let that part slide for the, for the rest of the show, which I think was a disappointment. I don't know if Maggie comes back. I can't remember that specifically, but I don't think so. Because now we get mm-hmm. Nate and Sophie going forward. Right. Yeah, the one thing I will say is uh, one of the advantage of the Nate Maggie thing is that the Nate Sophie thing has no room except for the very end, and that it's in a way good for Sophie because she is forced to then deal with the rest of the team throughout this episode, and that actually sparkles. Her inability to give a sincere apology and her team's recognition that she can't do that, but still kind of wanting it is a really interesting emotional dynamic that happens throughout the B plot of this episode. And I, that was far more interesting to me than Nate's alleged worry over his son's death. And I, I hate to agree, but I, I am in total agreement. And the fact that she never really apologizes in the end at all, mm-hmm. she does the closest she can do to it. And then they make a quip about accepting her apology and even she gets a little disgruntled, but then they just move on. So that shows them bonding as a team and becoming more of a family than a team. Yep. Ah, oh, so right. good. But, but I mean, it, it's also really interesting that of all the people that she betrayed, you know, it's, it, it's Elliot. That's the most hurt. And to have the tough guy be the person who articulates his feelings the most was actually genuinely refreshing. Because it could have been Parker. It, it, it could have been the hacker. I, it could have been either of them. I think it would have been stranger if it was Parker, given well, how... I, I, I meant for people who aren't thinking these things through, who aren't thinking that the characters... Yeah, Parker, okay. the character perspective makes no sense, yes. But in terms of corporate executive guy, we should have the woman 
feel betrayed, yeah. right? That's what I'm talking about. But the fact is that Elliot, because these characters are so well written, if you've been following the show, only Elliot could be saying these things because Elliot clearly has problems with betrayal. But from a pure just kind of I'm not thinking this through perspective, he seems like the last person to. But it feels so organic and natural, and so what ends up as a result is some genuine emotional honesty from a tough guy male character that you just never fucking see today. You don't see this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so Elliot comes across as, as genuinely hurt, and you believe it. And from a, a writing perspective, it makes a lot of sense because Elliot would have now considered these people like his squad, like the people that he has spent all of his time with. And there is a level that of trust that comes with that. If you break that, it is hard to get back to where it was. And that is why he's constantly reinforcing that. And you know that Elliot used to be a soldier. So all that's there in the character. Yep. I will say also in that scene, on top of all of that, pretty clear to me indications that Parker is into Sophie in a way that they could not show on TV in 2008. <laughs> like Parker straight up sniffs her at one point and then just gives her a smile. And I'm like, Oh, she's, she's into her. <laughs> it's clear. So what I'm getting from you, from you, Eddie, is that if they had dropped Nate, these people would have been a quartet of people. Yes. Enjoying themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Good to know. I, I am in agreement. Any <laughs> closing thoughts on leverage as we've talked about leverage, I think longer than almost any other show. Well, I mean, th there's a lot to talk about because it's it's got a lot of the character strengths of something like uh, Burn Notice. Um, on top of that, it has a strong heist film structure. If you watch it week to week, some of the episodes are weaker than others. That's certainly fair. And yeah. I, I would argue that after roughly season two or three, the show starts to kind of lose its steam, which I think a lot of shows like this tend to do. Even Burn Notice did the same thing. Well, to uh, that but, point, though, a little bit for this show, the one of the reasons it loses steam and then comes back is that they lose Sophie for about a season and yeah. they replace her with uh Jerry Ryan seven of nine, mm -hmm. which then changes the dynamic of how everyone interacts. And then eventually I think seven of nine goes away and Sophie comes back. Right. I, I, I think it, it's, it's one of those things that where it, it again, structure like an eight team style show where it's about the team, but the eight team wasn't really character driven in the same way that leverage is. Uh, and so if you take a piece out, the whole show changes. Um, and I think John Rogers tried to correct course on that, but it didn't quite work. And that's that's fine. Whereas Burn Notice, it's about Michael Weston. And you can change characters around Michael Weston a little bit without losing the structure of the show. It just happens that also they managed to keep that team together for pretty much the entire run and continue to build and grow and change. Um, and so... And again, we talked about adding Jesse, and we didn't cover that. When you add Jesse, and he finds a piece of that dynamic and, and puts himself in, and then he also pulled out. But leverage is so about the 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 five dynamics that are here. Well, multiple dynamics here, but the dynamics between the five characters here. And so, if you take one out, all the dynamics shift. And I would, if not everyone's on board with that. It can be harder. I would still say the same thing about burn notice because if you remove Bruce Campbell or Fee the show then loses, a st or even Michael's mo mother, the show loses a beat, which I think is what happened in later seasons of Burn Notice 2. I'm trying to remember Burn Notice. It's been a long time since I've watched the later seasons, but I think something similar uh, to that well, happened. The, the difference is, is that Burn Notice brings in other supporting cast members to fill in 
different roles as opposed to leverage. It had to bring in supporting cast members to fill the same role. Yeah. Right. So I see that you're replacing Sophie with another con artist. And so that con artist has to fill the same narrative role while a different emotional role. And that can be hard to balance. Whereas the, like you said, um, there's one point where Michael's, I think the actor was unavailable for a while, Michael's mother. And so they brought in his brother for a while and his brother filled a different family role. It was the same kind of rough narrative space, but Michael's relationship with his brother is different than his relationship with his mom and doesn't have to be a similar relationship. I see that. Thank you. But to, but to a larger point, we're, we're frankly we're, we're quibbling because at the reality yeah. is is that there's it's such a strong show at the start that we're saying eh, it kind of tapers off after a few seasons is saying it goes from being a fantastic show to being only a pretty good really good show and there are shows that never even hit that benchmark yep that we've talked about on this show <laughs> yeah some of them are even doctor who <laughs> yeah <laughs> I interrupted your closing thoughts. Any final thoughts on leverage before we uh, that, that, move on? That, that was basically it. I mean, aside from that, letting you, thank you for letting me indulge in my RPG theory because leverage is such a perfect show to talk about tabletop role playing game design using narrative language or television language. Of course, that's part of what we do here. Eddie, what do we do next week? Are we gonna are we gonna do leverage season two? Are we gonna do burn notice season two? Or better yet. Are we going to stop all this nonsense and then go watch Yellowstone? Wow. I thought you were going to say Twin Dilemma. <laughs> I, I, I purposely went in a totally different direction just to get that look in your face. Because <laughs> I was like, no, don't please don't make more Twin Dilemma. Uh, no, we're going to continue on this vein uh, for a little bit longer since we have been talking about rain johnson a little bit in this episode and also if you're not in the patreon we did just cover um at least one of his movies maybe both we're still debating that uh but i want i've been wanting to watch poker face and this is a good reason to do so so uh i'm at least why are we watching why are we watching a lady gaga music video that shouldn't take very long to talk about no we're watching the peacock exclusive poker face although it's not in peacock because peacock doesn't exist in the uk so it's now and we're just going to watch the first three episodes because I don't know what's what's good and what's not. So we're just going to watch the first three episodes and see how it goes. But we're going into this relatively fresh, but I've heard enough good things about it that I think we'll be satisfied. I've seen the first episode so far, and I'm pretty happy with it. Ooh, whoa, whoa. Are you saying we're doing a genreless first? We're telling people about something that Eddie has not fully watched yet? It's not the first time I've done it before. Hey, you're, you're still in the thunder of this moment that we're having now. And now you've made it go flat. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to bring facts up into your excited respinning re of the truth. Uh, <laughs> all right, you're saying. If people want to talk to me online and, and find out all the ways that I ruined Chris's fun, uh, you can uh, find me at Pugsteady. Uh, that's my website. That's most social media accounts. Uh, but generally speaking, the best way to find us sniping at each other like old married people is on the Darker Hue Discord. I would disagree with that. I think the best... No, you're right. The best way to find... The best way to contact me is going to be the Darker Hue Discord. That's where I'm posting a bunch of like memes of Star Trek because it brings me no end of joy. <laughs> the endless, endless joy it brings memes. me. Oh, because geez. they're so easy to find and they make me laugh and groan at once and I want to share that pleasure with everyone else. 
if you want to buy my stuff, you can come to the Dark Reader Studios website, IPR, Chaosium. I don't know. As you can tell, I, I'm I'm in high selling motivational mode because we're recording in the holiday season, and I may be shopped out right now from buying so many presents for Hanukkah, for Christmas, for birthdays last month. Endless. Well, you know what? If 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 our listeners are looking for the perfect holiday gift for the historian or the tabletop role playing game in their life, you should pick up Haunted West because Haunted <laughs> West is a great tabletop. Uh, a coffee book gift for that person in your life who really excited about uh, history and also a really cool role-playing game. So that's what you should do for holiday season. You should buy Haunted West and we will see you next week when we talk about Poker Face. Be seeing you. <laughs>